And if you have your Bibles with you, you might want to open them to, let's try Acts chapter 17. Let's see what's over there. Let's pray before we get into the word. Father God, we're approaching your word, so our hearts have to be tender and soft and our minds should focus and concentrate on what you would have for us this morning. There are great truths here. And again, the Easter story is told as it has been for many thousands of years. And this is one place it came for the first time. So we thank you for the opportunity to look at it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought this morning for Easter we would look at an unusual day in the ministry of the Apostle Paul in which his proclamation of the resurrection got a very strong reaction. Uh, if you have a Bible, Acts 17 is going to be where we are. But I'm going to talk about the idea of resurrection and life, eternal life generally for a few minutes and then we'll get into the text. So um, just hang on with me for a little bit. Generally, the idea of life after death is a topic that has really consumed human beings since there were human beings as far as we know, right? Even from a, a secular point of view, anthropologists, wherever they go, find plain evidence everywhere, even among long lost groups or tribes, even people that were a little bit different from us. Uh, that they looked ahead to some sort of afterlife. All of the great civilizations of the ancient world believed in an afterlife and made rather elaborate provisions to enjoy it, especially for their leaders, right? And, uh, or to endure it, depending on their theology. It's very human to look beyond the reality of this life and want there to be more. There's a little interesting argument about that I won't get into today, but um, if you really think about it, Things that are universally desired by human beings exists. Just think about it. What do, what do everybody long for that doesn't exist? We all desire food. We all desire companionship. We all desire family. We all desire all these different things that are just sort of part of human nature. And all of humanity desires to go on after this life. Why would we feel that way? Why do we feel that way? Why do human beings want that? Now, I know there's people that say, well, you know, you're dead. You go to the worms. That's it. But you got to make yourself kind of get to that point. The, the natural tendency is there's something beyond. And when you go to a funeral, there aren't too many people talking about worms and dirt. It's, it's all about where they are or something, you know, some hope at least. So it's a universal reality. And we have that hope because I think there is hope. Death still is a, a great mystery for people. It's universal. It's natural. Everybody's going, right? That's the idea there. But it still seems cruel. It seems like a cruel end, snatching people away from families, depriving us of loved ones, uh, depriving us of our place in the world, things we hope to do or accomplish or see. And for all who believe in justice, which is something very real, an idea, mere idea, but it's a very real thing that we all have this sense of justice. It's pretty obvious there's a lot of injustice in this world. And another reason I think people hope for another world or another life is that it's not going to work out here. There's way too many people that do really bad things and live a happy, fruitful uh, life they want to live to a ripe old age and people that do the right thing and they get messed over real bad and die young, like Jesus. Death is a great barrier to the human quest for knowledge, especially since once you found out its secrets, you can't tell anybody about them back here. Right? I mean, there used to be this craze back in the 70s, uh, 
Beyond and Back, there were all these books coming out, you know, the people said they traveled to the next life and came back and all this kind of stuff. That sort of got tired, so Christians picked it up and started having going to heaven and back stories, you know, and they make movies out of them, and um, most of them are pretty silly and not true, uh, but... Um, one, in fact, one of the more popular one of those books, some child that went to heaven, the child now as an adult says, I never, I, I never went there. It's just, my, my folks made a lot of money off that book, but I never, I never went to heaven. Others are turned into, uh, you know, these kind of weepy movies and stuff. But it's, it's popular in some circles to preach heaven by experience rather than by God's word. Now, if you're in a wholly different group of people in our culture, the intellectual sets or the elite kind of people, it's very different. You must have a moral objection to saying there, there is an afterlife. You've got to not like that, a whole idea. They would say there is no afterlife, no afterlife. Stephen Hawking, the, the poor crippled man that's an incredibly intelligent uh, astrophysicist or whatever his line of work is, he said, quote, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That's a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Now there's always been people like him that talk like that, always have been. But it really became cool after the Enlightenment several hundred years ago for elite people to say there's no afterlife, that kind of thing. Now of course it is fair to ask the question why a computer would be afraid of the dark. That's an important question that he doesn't quite address there. But um, it's actually pretty interesting to look at the people who really made this idea popular and they're materialists. What's a materialist? A person that believes the material world is all there is. If you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. We meet a lot of people like that in our day and age, don't we? They believe that only if you can measure it is it real. A big star in, in the thinking of that from the Enlightenment's beginning was Augustus uh, Comte who died in 1857. He's called the father of sociology and he said that the belief in the afterlife was a bad thing because it made men, quote, slaves of God, unquote. Can't have that. <laughs> he didn't want people serving God but he wanted to make men, quote, servants of humanity, unquote. Instead, would you rather be a slave of God or a slave of humanity. Just think about it. Some people have really been big on that idea of slaves of humanity. Hasn't turned out very well. His ideal state, he said, was the, quote, triumph of sociability over personality, unquote. So you can see that his philosophy in these ways is very much alive, and it's actually slowly coming to take over Western civilization, that very thought. Europe has uh, fully succumbed to that approach to thinking. Uh, sociability versus personhood and personality. Comte had a contemporary, uh, a fellow named uh, Karl Marx, who taught that belief in an afterlife robbed man of his greatness and robbed man of his fulfillment of self. He hated religion, of course, and sneered, quote, it's easy to become a saint if one does not want to be a man, unquote. Atheism, he said, is the negation of God and seeks to assert this to assert by this negation the existence of man. In other words, if you can assert the negation of God, then you're asserting man, the existence of man. Now, of course, God and man have existed together for a really long time, so that's not really what he means when he says that. What he means is the supremacy of man over God. That's what he's talking about, and uh, that's where his heart was. Autonomy, man being autonomous from God. Now, of course, that didn't work out really well because 
Well, for one thing, Carl was personally a pretty corrupt human being and a very petty, wicked man. But his legacy has been one of the murder of at least 100 million people by his true devoted followers like Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot and um, all those kind of wonderful human beings, Fidel Castro, untold millions of people just slaughtered. All of that uh, prompted a more cynical atheist uh, named Albert Camus, a French uh, philosopher, to say, why did the Enlightenment lead to the blackout? That's a really good question. That's a really good question. The answer can be found in Genesis chapter 3 because what Comte and Marx offered the world, sociability over personality, making men servants of humanity instead of servants of God, asserting the supremacy of man over God, is exactly what the serpent offered our first parents in the garden. That's exactly it. Autonomy. You surely shall not die, he told them. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes shall be opened and you will be like God. Serve humanity, not God. That's the very first temptation. It's still rolling around. So much goes on that has always gone on. And now it's everywhere, right? That idealization of man, the exaltation of man. And the truth is, leaving God out leads to a kind of insanity. Um, And it's all around us, that insanity. So much so that, just one little example, is that many schools now teach that children should pick from 52 different genders. That's like totally insane, but it's like, that's the current spirit of the age, right? Because man separated from God and what God made is just like, whatever you feel, it's just what the truth is. And so men are far more willing and likely to serve other men if, if, They don't believe in an afterlife, these guys say. But the reality is people are way more apt to serve other men if they do have a belief in the afterlife. That's just generally true, whether you're talking about Christians or not. Far from uh, disconnecting from this world, the tendency, if you really believe in an afterlife, is to hold onto this world a little less tightly, right? You can let some things go. And of course, for a Christian, a true Christian, there's way more going on than that. Our reward, eternal life is is found in Jesus Christ, so we aren't trying to score points with him, we don't need to persuade him, we don't need to kind of win him over, or anything like that. He's done it! He died for our sins, he paid the penalty in full, he's called the all-sufficient Savior because of that. Simply put, we love God, and that love spills over into serving other people. And knowing that there's an afterlife just sets us free to do that. It just adds to our freedom. I don't have to have everything here, I don't have to get everything, I don't have to win here so I can give more, I can be available to other people more. Christ modeled that for us more than anything, right? I can give up my life for others. His security was in his Father's love and that freed him to live for other people. We have the same exact security knowing that heaven is secured for us by him. It makes it much easier to become, as Comte feared so horribly, slaves of God. We can become slaves of God because Christ has freed us from other things. And all that means is serving other people and serving our Lord most of all. It's okay to give time and money and invest in other people because we're taken care of. That's what eternal life gives us in this life. And that's why Christians do so many good works in the world and always have. Far more than other groups. Uh, I don't even need to go there because it's just so true. 
but it's an overflow of faith. A faith not centered on the afterlife itself, but on the great and loving God who welcomes us into eternity and purchased our redemption so that we can enjoy it here and we'll enjoy it forever with him. We don't believe in an afterlife because it makes men better. It does make men better, but that's not why we believe in it. But because God says it's real and he says it's ours if we're in Jesus Christ. So materialism is a philosophy of the elites in our world today in the West and one that has already proven disastrous and deadly and mad. And I don't mean angry mad, I mean loopy. In the ancient world, there weren't many materialists. There were some, but there were religions and philosophies that were similarly disastrous and deadly and mad and led to incredible wild things. With surprisingly similar objectives, the autonomy and glory of man in the place of God. There are many ways to arrive at the same satanic conclusion that Augustus Comte and Karl Marx arrived at. John Calvin said, the heart is an idol factory. We just make idols all the time. Idols, the apostles did not shrink from them but took them on head on. And our story today in Acts chapter 17, you can start looking there now, is the story of Paul and the philosophers in Athens. And there was quite a clash, not over the afterlife. That was generally an accepted belief. It wasn't a big issue for these particular philosophers, but really over the idea of a resurrection. Say, what's the difference? Because the afterlife is just saying some part of you or some spirit or something goes on forever. But a resurrection is you will someday be reunited with a body, a glorious risen body. That's a shocking idea in the ancient world. It was completely against the prevailing opinion. Paul believed in the afterlife and the resurrection, the reunion of body and spirit, glorified. And for him it wasn't some doctrine. He, he was personally commissioned by the risen Jesus. So Jesus appeared to him and said, you're going to be an apostle. Stop persecuting the church. We're changing your life. And uh, he did. Let's talk about Athens a little bit because this is where Paul went. At one time it was the glory of Greece, I mean truly, and the ancient world in so many ways. So it was so honored that when the Romans conquered Greece, they let Athens be its own little independent state. They had to bow to Rome and send tribute and all that kind of stuff. But it was a free state. They, the Romans didn't have a governor there or anything. They could govern their own affairs. They run their own city. And they let certain places do that. And uh, Interestingly, it does not appear that Paul prioritized Athens on his, in his mission strategy. If you ever pay attention to the New Testament where he went, he picked key cities that were on key roads. So if he could evangelize an important city on a key highway, the gospel would radiate out from there. He knew that. So that was sort of his plan. We don't know if he was planning to go to Athens. It's not the way he arrived. He actually got kicked out of Berea, and some of the Bereans took him to Athens and kind of deposited him there, and he was supposed to wait for his other team members to come. And so he's just sort of hanging out there. He's left more or less alone, and he does a little sightseeing in this really famous city, and he's walking along the Agora. He's provoked in his spirit by the huge number of idols that are there. Now, Laura and I just were fortunate enough to be in Athens in the early part of this year, and you cannot, um, you really get a sense, even though most of it's gone and, and ruins now, but just from what's left of the Agora and these pillars that are kind of lining the streets, and they all had, in, in the ancient world, there's only a few left, but they all had statues on them of the gods. I mean, if you walk through the Agora, you're just looking at gods all over the place, all, all the time, idols. That's all that was there. 
And um, of course the Parthenon sitting on top of the Acropolis, the big hill up there, there's a giant statue of Athena in there for Athens. And uh, when you come out of that, um, you can look down, way down below is the Agora and there's just gods everywhere. You know, it's all over the place like that. So Athens is really a significant city for all that it gave the world in terms of intellectual vigor, but it was an idolatrous place. Athens looms very large in the Western mind. In fact, Western civilization is very often said, this is a way to kind of summarize the two major streams that came in the created Western civilization that, that we live in, that we know, even though it's falling apart. They say it's Athens and Jerusalem, or usually it's put Jerusalem and Athens because God comes first. So it's the whole biblical stream, and then there's the whole Greek thought stream, and those things have merged together. That's what created Western civilization, and that's very true. I mean, you can see both all throughout that. So the Greek mind, Greek art, Greek literature, and the faith of Abraham and Jesus Christ. So we are to our peril, I think in modern times, kicking Jerusalem to the curb, if you will, and we're gonna try, we're gonna try to go the Greek only way. That's a, a new experiment. It's, it's uh, gonna turn out to be truly disastrous. Just hang on and watch if you live long enough. I'm hoping to die before all that, but um, we shall see what happens when we're left with just Athens. That's coming along. In Acts 17, Jerusalem doesn't find a glorious Athens, but a kind of a shadow of its former self. There's still this philosopher thing, but it's the golden age of Greece is long, long gone by the time of Paul coming to Athens. Athens had once been home to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle moved there for a while and, and uh, as well as Epicurus and Zeno, the founders of Stoicism. We're just gonna talk about that a little bit later on. But today um, we look at Athens as the center of a glorious art. That's what we think about. And of course we hit all the museums when we were there and the incredible beautiful, unbelievable artwork. I mean, just fantastic work. But Paul didn't look at it as art because people were worshiping that stuff. We look at it in a museum, but I'd never see anybody in the museum bowing down to those things, you know. It's, that's not really done anymore in that way. But in the first century, art was worshiped. The very name Athens is named after Athena, who supposedly had a contest with Poseidon to see who would, you know, Zeus made a new city and grew these Athenians out of the ground and Poseidon wanted to be the god of that city and Athena wanted to be the god of that city so they had a contest and she won and she became the premier goddess of that place and she's the goddess of uh, wisdom and war and all these great things. So uh, now Paul knew that the Greeks did not need Athena. He knew that they needed Jesus Christ, the risen savior, the living God. So that's what he came to bring them. And Athena was going to have to step off her throne for Jesus. And that's what he was going, all by himself, he's in there. And he's going to encounter this. He's going to take on all of these gods, you know. Man's problem is sin. And idolatry is sin. In fact, the very first commandment and the second commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, right? You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven or on earth or beneath the earth or in the, water of the, un, in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So God insists that men not make the mistake of false worship. It makes men corrupt. And worse, it makes men irredeemable because what's the solution if you're corrupt? If you're worshiping stone or wood or some fantasy God of your own imagination, you can't be redeemed, you can't be restored, you can't be saved, you can't be changed, you can't be put on the right path if your allegiance 
that's due to the real God is given to some phony God. So you're never going to make it. Right? It's like a wheel. If the center of the wheel, think of your bicycle wheel, if the center is off, you're going to have a real bumpy ride. You can't, you gotta, it's got to be on center. Well, God is the center of everything. And if you're off of him, your life's going to be like that. And your afterlife's going to be even worse. So um, Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, no other gods and no idols. In fact, when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 13, anybody that is a covenant member of the Jewish nation who vowed and swore that they would serve the true and living God, if, if they start promoting idols, they were to be put to death. That was... That was the crime for that. Well, that seems kind of harsh. Why so uh, uptight? What's wrong with a few idols? Well, like I said, idols in itself make correction impossible. You can only be corrected by the truth. It's a foundational sin, idolatry is, and in Israel it became a crime. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 5, literally defines idolatry, uses this word, it's rebellion. It's rebellion against the, the true and living God. It's rebellion against heaven idolatry is. It's a very serious crime. The New Testament reveals the true nature of idolatry in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 20 it says the things which Gentiles sacrifice they sacrifice to demons. So idolatry is really a demonic worship. It's the so the artwork of Athens it doesn't matter how beautiful it is or how skillfully wrought it is it doesn't matter how pleasing it is to the eye fundamentally it's satanic. And goes way back to Satan's first temptation yet again. So it's not because it's art. It's because it was worshipped. So Paul in Athens is the apostle of Christ. In Satan's ground. Satan's turf if you will. He immediately follows his usual evangelistic protocol. After he's kind of walked through the city. Number one. He hits the synagogue. And in the synagogue, there's Jews that understand the Old Testament. He can preach to them. And there's always God-fearers, Gentiles who have not fully converted, not been circumcised, but are attracted to the one God of Israel and come and worship there. And um, he comes to there to preach, first of all. And then he goes to the Agora, what's called the marketplace in verse 17. It says, so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. And in the marketplace, the Agora, every day with those who happened to be present. Now when you read marketplace, don't picture like the checkout line at Albertsons or something. That's not what it was like. There, it's a huge area. And there's a, a big open area. There's all these statues of the gods. And then there's all along the sides of it, well, there's all these stalls where people are selling stuff, it is a marketplace, but there's huge porticos and um, you know, big columns and covered building ways that run really long and they're all around it and you can go under there. The American Money has actually rebuilt one of those in the Agora in Athens today. You can go there and it was great for us that it was there because it started pouring rain when we were there so we were all hiding out under the Agora there looking at gods and goddesses that were, were uh, statues that were stuck under there. But um, the philosophers used to meet there. There were schools going on under those porticos, these shaded huge porches with these big columns. So the Agora is gigantic, all these vendor stalls, but then you got these porticos, and um, in there is where the philosophers met in Paul's day. Ideas were exchanged, debated, students were tutored, budding philosophers were trained, and it was sort of in the open. So if you wanted to go hear what they were doing, you could walk over and listen after you bought your vegetables or your fish or something. It was the center of Athenian intellectual life. And the public was allowed to listen. So, guess who Paul meets in the Agora? Verse 18. Also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? 
Others, he seems to be the proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So the Epicureans and the Stoics were the dominant philosophical schools of the day in the first century. The Epicureans believed in pleasure primarily. That was the chief end of life. Not necessarily tawdry pleasure, just the good life kind of a thing. And the ideal life was a, a tranquil life, free of pain, free of drama. No drama. They battled against superstition and while not denying the gods, they didn't really make a big deal out of the gods too much, the uh, Epicureans. They, they were unconcerned, let's say, put it that way, with the afterlife because they thought if you focused on the afterlife too much, it would destroy your pleasure here. Yeah, it might. So they were rather modern in that way. The Stoics, founded by Zeno centuries earlier, were named for um, that part of Athens where Zeno taught in the third century BC. And the Stoics believed one should live in harmony with nature, be rational, be self-sufficient. Duty was really important, self-control, moral character, and pride. And uh, God was the world soul, and he sort of permeated everything. They were sort of pantheistic. The fates ruled everything. And if you know what it means, when you, even today when we say somebody's a Stoic, you just put up with whatever happens, right? You can endure it. Because uh, the fates rule the world, and you can't change it. So stiff upper lip kind of thing, and uh, move forward, right? One must submit and endure life's blows with courage and resolution. So to both of those groups, which were sort of the dominant groups in the first century in Athens, the idea of a sovereign God who created and governed the world, that was a little strange to them, even though they would have known Jews and that they believed something like that. Human corruption and being accountable to that God after death, that was a strange idea to them. Both rejected the idea of a conscious life after death. That wasn't important to them at all. So Paul is, well, my translation says it's an idle babbler. The the actual Greek phrase is a seed picker. And, And the idea is that he's going around picking up scraps the way birds do on the ground, you know, and he's collected this little bit of philosophy here and a little bit of philosophy there, and he seems to be, he's a seed picker. That's, that's kind of the language they used back then. In verse 18, they seem to think Jesus and Anastasis, resurrection, is, a, is another God. It's like there's two gods there. There's a Jesus God, an Anastasis God. Uh, what's he talking about? Strange deities. He's not sure what, what he's saying. They're not sure. So they're not real impressed, but Paul was very different. He was new, so they found his new gods fun to interact with. So verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. And then it says, and this is Luke's comment, now all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. That shows you how far philosophy had fallen. I mean, uh, Plato wouldn't have been like that. But these, by then it was, you know, it wasn't the same. It wasn't the great world anymore. It was just, they were pretty low-level philosophers. So the Areopagus, or the Hill of Ares, is, or what the Romans would call Mars Hill, is a huge outcropping of rock. And when you come out of the uh, Acropolis, and you're going to go down all these steps to go down to the lower city. This, there's this giant rock just sticking out of the ground. There's this huge thing. And that's, that's the Areopagus. That's, that's the rock. That's Mars Hill or the Hill of Ares or whatever you want to call it. Gigantic thing. It's the first thing that just grabs your attention. And that's probably not where Paul was speaking because the belief today is that by this time in the first century, although they used to meet on that big rock, they went, it met down in the Agora somewhere under these porticos, probably. It's just a group. It's the name of the group that started up on that hill. Nobody knows for sure about that stuff. But on that big rock, there's a giant metal plaque, plate, that has the entire sermon that Paul's going to give here in Greek uh, just plastered on that thing. And it's kind of fun to see that there. But um, 
the Areopagites did have this kind of authority over who was allowed to teach in Athens. You know, if you're, if you're kind of known for being the great school of philosophers, you don't want any dope coming in and saying crazy stuff, so well, we'll let, we have to examine you first, and if you pass our test, we'll let you sort of open a little school if you want to, or something like that kind of thing. So, so Paul was invited to speak, um, to, to kind of see if he'd be ex- expect, accepted by them. And he has two tasks. What's his task? One, win approval to speak there, and the second task is to win people to Christ. So we have here in Acts 17 at least an outline or a summary of his talk, and I'm just gonna walk you through it real quick. It's a masterful talk, it's brilliant. It's designed to appeal to Gentile minds, tell it straight, not hiding anything, but not giving unnecessary offense. He's trying to approach them in a way that they would understand. So he quotes, not scripture, he quotes their own poets. And when they say something that's true about the real God, he quotes them. So that's kind of an interesting feature here. But the way he shows his classical training to them, for one thing, which would maybe make him more acceptable to them, but he cleverly begins with an inscription because he's walking around the city and he sees this inscription that says, to an unknown God. And there's a whole story behind why they built an altar to an unknown God. But he's going to take that and run with it. So verse 22. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children." So he's telling them who the unknown God is. Who is God? He made the world. Most Greeks saw the supreme God as way too far removed from our universe to have made the world. That God did not make the world. He wouldn't soil his hands with it, if you will. He kept himself clean. Paul says, God made the world and all things in it. One God, creator of all. What is he? The Lord of heaven and earth, supreme over all things. Men, therefore, are what? They're accountable to him. He does not dwell in temples like all the pagan gods do. He made all, he transcends all, he doesn't need anything. You can't serve him, you can't bring him offerings and food and things like that that he needs. He gives life, breath, and sustenance to everything. He made mankind from one person, one male person he's talking about, the first Adam, and of course we Eve too. Verse 26, he governs the rise and the fall of nations and the boundaries of peoples. The Athenians actually believe they sprung out of the soil of Attica and they were superior to all other, all other peoples. Um, no, that's not true. I mean, it, they believed it, but it, they were wrong. God's purpose, verse 27, real important, that they should seek God. That's why history, man fell, God scattered man, and he wants men to seek him. God isn't far away, he says. He's not far away from anyone. He's very near. So you can see him shift from the national sort of big picture thing to the personal thing. He's he's near to each one of us. 
Every individual is accountable to him. Then in verse 28, he quotes uh, Epimenides and, and Eratus of Cilicia, both poets. They were writing about Zeus, the supreme God. Paul does, but he's not telling about a well-known God. He's telling him about the unknown God. He's just saying what they said about your supreme God is true about the unknown God that you don't know. That's the real God. Those things are true. He's omnipresent and he made us. We are his offspring in that sense. His conclusion on God's nature, verse 29, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man. Idols cannot represent God. That's why they're forbidden. What does God want? What is the one true God, the creator of all things, the supreme God? What does he want from human beings? Verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. So that's what he wants, repentance. He's overlooking past transgressions in the light of a full revelation he's making known right now that they must repent because he will judge, verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. The world is lost, men are lost, God will judge men, and his standard is righteousness. And Paul continues, the judge has come and been identified by a sign, verse 31, he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's how you know who it's going to be. He's the only one that's done that. And that's where they stop him. Hold it. Stop right there, what you just said, hold it. He hasn't even said the name Jesus yet. He's heading there, <laughs> just getting there. He hasn't even said it yet. And they stop him. This is shocking stuff. Anastasis, that's not a God. He's talking about an event. He's saying some man rose from the dead. That's what he's saying. Stop it. Anastasis is a risen man, the judge of the world. Speech over, verse 32. Now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Greek philosophy had no category for the resurrection of dead people. They did not think that way. The spirit is good. The flesh is a prison house. That's basically the idea that kind of infuses Greek thought. Why would God resurrect a man? I mean, that's silly. So, you know, some people think Paul failed here. Was it, was it a bad strategy to, to go at it the way he did? I don't think so. It says some sneered, but verse 32 says, but others said, we will hear you again. That means he's in. He gets to teach there. We will hear you again concerning this. So he got his hearing and some found Christ and were changed forever. Verse 34, some men joined him and believed, and you've got to assume that with joined him, it means joined him, and he explained more, and he taught him, and they heard the whole gospel, and everything like that. Among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite. That means he was a member of that council of philosophers who gets to decide who stays and goes. So Dionysius, he, he believed. And a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So she must be really important, and he was really important. And then there's other folks that aren't named here. So they followed Paul. They got the whole story about Jesus, found it and Jesus compelling, and believed. There's a historian in the fourth century named Eusebius, and he wrote this um, about 
there's two Dionysiuses, okay? He says, Dionysius, one of the ancients, so here's a guy living in the fourth century, and he's talking about an ancient guy, okay, hundreds of years before him. He says, pastor of the Corinthians relates that the first bishop of the church at Athens was that member of the Areopagus, the other Dionysius, whose original conversion after Paul's speech to the Athenians is described in Acts. So Dionysius, a member of this bunch of philosophers, becomes a Christian, becomes the first pastor of the church of Athens. Athens. Isn't that amazing? Athens. That's a slip. <laughs> this is a philosophical center, is it not? <laughs> For horses. <laughs> and the woman Damaris must have been an important member also of the new Athenian church. Um, so listen, no matter how people respond, the apostles in every sermon in the book of Acts and always preach the resurrection. That, that's the one thing. What did Jesus tell him to do? At the very beginning of the book, he says, tell them what you've seen. Be wit- you are witnesses of these things, and that's what you're to proclaim. And so everywhere they went, no matter who it was, no matter how different they were, their thinking was, they, they got the resurrection in, because that is the great evidence that God was working through Jesus Christ. The fact of the risen Christ is central to the gospel. The resurrection is the proof of the whole Christian message. If Christ has not been raised, we are of all men what? Most to be pitied, he said, right? First Corinthians 15, we talked about. A dead Jesus is a good teacher taken down by ignorant men. The risen Jesus is God the Son, the Savior of the world, the risen Lord, our King and Judge. He rose so we know he is the one. That's the whole point. And since God has set a day for judgment, he says, the single necessary thing for us to do is... Get right with him. And that only comes by repentance. To embrace the Savior, to follow him, to believe, and to turn our lives over to him, and to acknowledge that we have gone our own way, we've done our own thing, we've thought our own thoughts apart from him, we've sinned against him probably a gazillion times, and we're unworthy. And he's offering this free salvation to people just like us, if we repent and embrace him. The truth does not change. He is risen. And if the gospel Paul preached was true then, it's still true today. It's our answer in a sea of crazy ideas that floats through the world just like they floated through the world back then. They're floating today. The current philosophies and opinions of today, we talk about materialism as one example. They don't matter any more than what the Epicureans taught or what the Stoics taught in Paul's day. He is risen and all the other claims to truth, they just fade away in the light of that glorious resurrection. A day of judgment has been fixed. Outside of Christ, we will go to that judgment carrying our own sin. In Christ, having him, we will go into that judgment with his righteousness. There's a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's, that's an incredible thing. So when you're seen by God in Christ, he actually sees the righteousness of Christ. That's the legal thing he sees there. You're okay. I accept you because you're righteous in my eyes because we belong to Jesus. He took our sins away. It's funny, I don't know how many times I've been at Vasquez Rocks watching somebody get crucified portraying Jesus and I weep every time because it doesn't get old because it's an incredible thing that's going on there what it represents 
Easter is about a debt paid and life given and a sinner standing before God as righteous. That's what it's all about. And that and more Jesus purchased for us on the cross to be clean and to be welcomed by God because of his great love. He sent Jesus in the world and crushed him for our sin. That's what the Bible says. And he volunteered to do it. How can you turn him down? How can you not repent? Really? What is, what is the arrogance and the pride that would keep anyone from grasping onto him? Well, because I'm a materialist and I think there's only a measurable thing. Really? Come on, there's more, you know. There's more. And God has shown the way. He visited our world. He taught us all about him. Lived it, lived a perfectly righteous life and gave up that life for us. In its prime. Because he didn't need to be lived live to be an old man. He didn't come to be an old man. He came to die for our sins. And he happily did that. So we embrace that. We're in him. We get to live with him forever. It's a gift. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in such a wonderful, all-sufficient Savior that you've provided for us. You are glorious and great. Gracious, but jealous. You're jealous for our sakes as well as your own because there's only one way we can be saved. And you've provided it. So we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to focus on this marvelous, wonderful Savior. And that we would go out of here this morning just rejoicing and celebrating him and basking in the love that you've provided for us through him. We pray in his name. Amen.